but do I look like a sex murderer to you? Can you imagine me creeping around London, strangling all those women with ties? That's ridiculous. To a start, I own my own too. Hey, <laughs> what a zinger. Um, is it just me, or is it really just like a bad line to, to, to say to anybody, do I look like a sex murderer to you? I thought he was going to say sex maniac because they kept saying that in the movie. Which I was yeah. just like, well, that's a weird term. We don't use that anymore, do we? <laughs> no, no. Very antiquated. What a mess. Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to its release and reception. It is the final episode of our existential thriller cycle. Um, Chris, what do we have to say about that? This has been a oh fun boy. one. Yes. What a, what a ride. Um, we uh, are wrapping this cycle up. Um, and similar to when we wrapped up our previous cycle, which was our first in the reboot uh, requeling of <laughs> film trace, if you will, uh, the self-aware horror subgenre. And I say it feels similar because I feel like we've kind of done the Ouroboros, like the, the snake eating its tail. Yes. Just like we did um, when we delved into postmodernism and talked about like, I mean, we began that cycle with the uh, reboot of Scream uh, and then ended with um, Last House on the Left, the original Wes Craven uh, so like we started and ended with Wes Craven, um, both whether it be like in spirit of the schlocky adaptation of his previous work and then ending with, you know, where, where pretty much that all started. And I didn't think we were going to do that this time around, but we ended up doing that. I don't know if you, you felt all the men vibes, uh, 2022 oh, Alex Garland men while watching, uh, the main film for our cycle finale here, Alfred Hitchcock's frenzy did you see those parallels or was that just me looking for for some kind of parallelism no i think i i didn't necessarily men but i think to what you're talking about like it does feel it feels like we're swimming up the river or something mm. like we're going to where this all sort of started and yeah now that you say that there's tons of parallels with men um, but there's something about like going back to Hitchcock. I mean, he almost like invented the thriller, right? I mean, some people right. say that. Um, and it is so odd going back to the seventies, early seventies in this case, and kind of uncovering what a thriller was back then. And I think in this case with frenzy, it, it was even out of place back then as sort of being more stark uh more sort of almost documentary like right it's just a very dark anxious movie um that definitely has a lot of parallels to today uh it was kind of like startling um the tone of this did you find that to be the case oh totally uh okay. well we should probably start right what the heck is frenzy about frenzy. yeah and uh how does it i mean where what are our personal histories with it because this was a rewatch True. for me um oh and wait, this is a, a rewatch Yes, yes. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, uh, but let's start, yeah, start with the IMDb synopsis, which uh, in 
per you know true IMDb fashion is kind of a mess, but uh, not all that inaccurate compared to some of their other um, more tragic uh, synopses. It says a serial murderer is strangling women with a necktie. The London police have a suspect, but he is the wrong man. London is terrorized by a vicious sex killer known as the necktie murderer. So there's the redundancy classic IMDb following the brutal slaying of his ex-wife down in his luck. Richard Blaney is suspected by the police of being the killer. Once again, this is the innocent man on the run, which it's kind of surprising. Excuse me. Why did that make me sneeze? Um, (laughs) uh, We, we hadn't had a, you know, uh, wrong man um, accused uh, movie in our cycle so far, even including some of the chaser films. Am I, I guess I right. the hunt is the only exception. And yeah. That's the hunt, like, yeah. That's like, but that was very... different. That was sort of like, um, yeah, that was more like a fable type thing about group. Exactly. Thing. Exactly. And this is like very straightforward, innocent man, it's you know, pure genre framed. Stuff. Well, I guess he is kind of framed at the end there. Um, but yeah, innocent man on the run, essentially. Um, let's talk about our, uh, Hitchcock, man. Like I, I feel like you're going to have a way longer and deeper history with him than I do. So tell me about your love, hatred, respect. <laughs> what do you um, I mean, I was a pretty, uh, classic by the book, uh, Hitchcock obsessive in high school, um, saw psycho vertigo and North by Northwest. That was kind of like the trifecta where I was just like, oh yeah, old movies uh, can be awesome. And I think actually my entry point might have been, uh, sad to say, but it might have been the remake, Shot for Shot by Gus Van Sant, um, in 1998 of Psycho. Uh, Such a mess. Um, But, you know, it was fascinating enough to me, like starting to be a burgeoning film history nerd, and then wanting to go back, and I, you know, borrowed uh the original psycho from the library and then vertigo also had a modern connection uh terry gilliam's 12 monkeys with bruce willis uh has a very like strong thread about vertigo and there's very there's a lot of echoes and influence of vertigo on 12 monkeys and so then that led me there and you know the rest is history as they say and i think i at least attempted to watch most if I, I don't think i got through every single hitchcock film but yeah. um, between high school and college that was kind of like uh, a, a passion project of mine is going getting through his whole filmography and uh it probably wasn't until i started being a little more um aware uh i'd say probably not even into not until i was like you know in my mid to late 20s of like the more problematic side of the auteur and uh uh, I think that was around the time when Tippi Hedren started making comments to uh, sure. the press about her treatment um, during the filming of The Birds, which I never really cared for, but also during Marnie, which is a uh, a favorite of mine of his. And there were, you know, you go back and you rewatch Hitchcock and it becomes pretty apparent, you know, his pretty uh, um, uh, questionable um, view of like, the female form on screen and then how do you reconcile that with just like his you know objectively uh, revolutionary artistry when it comes to suspense and um deep focus and uh you know how he kind of not just revolutionized the genre but also revolutionized medium along with orson wells and maybe you know two or three other names that people uh 
can 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 spat off but uh it, it was really hard having you know gone through that and i kind of stayed away from hitchcock for a while though i still always you know it, it, i think you can still um do a pretty easy breakdown of why you know any given sequence in especially vertigo or psycho uh, is a master class of um being able to teach suspense in my high school film studies class and so f- watch re-watching frenzy for the first time probably since i was 20 or so yeah. uh a very different very different watch and <laughs> i did not feel great during much of any of it Ooh, yeah <laughs> how it's... about you uh i have a weird history with him because i distinctly remember going to um i didn't really grow up with him at all as like a kid or a teenager but i remember going to universal studios when i was like 17 Hmm. and like there's a very distinct hitchcock um kind of i'm not section of the entire place and like that the psycho house is there or replica whatever and they walk you through how the shower scene was shot and actually produced and it was cool. i was like floored by the whole thing as like yeah. a teenager uh so like that was and they did a lot with the birds too and how they did a lot of those special effects so i was like really into that part of it but i never re- uh really got into his films and like you know i've seen rear window i've seen dial m for murder very recently doing a kind of noir rewatch uh vertigo psycho um but that's kind of it so I'm mm. not well-versed in him at all. Okay. okay. I, it, the odd thing about me, too, is that I remember his TV show stuff, uh, uh, Hitchcock yeah. Presents, more than I do his movies, actually. I remember mm. growing up with that uh, and seeing that. Like, my grandparents' house, we would watch that, and I was super fascinated by those little vignettes that he would do and his sort of presentation on screen. You know, to me, he was always more of, like, a celebrity uh, in kind of my mind and how I saw him. And I didn't really dive into his filmography all that much until recently. Um, and, you know, he's got a certain style to him and showmanship that, um, you know, it, it's a little bit like Dal M for Murder when I was watching that. And I was comparing that to a lot of noirs that I was watching of the similar time period. And I was like, oh, well, this is completely different. Like, this is very, um, you know, now it would be like paint by numbers. But back then it was super innovative. Mm. But watching it now, it's like, oh, like I can follow everything that's going on here. There's not a lot of like, didn't feel it was a huge like undercurrent of like social criticism or anything else going on. It was like a super well-made thriller. Um, And that's kind of, you know, kind of how he's approached his work. So Frenzy was, you know, a little bit of a different watch for me too, because I've never seen it before and I don't really have um, a deep background in Hitchcock. So yeah, it was a, it was interesting experience. Um, and knowing that it was what his penultimate film, right? I think he did one more right. after this, and uh, so kind of the end of his career. A lot of people thought he was sort of fading, uh, you know, after Psycho. Marnie wasn't, uh, you know, experimental and didn't do very well. Um, but this one was kind of seen as a comeback for him, um, and uh, it did quite well. And people were, um, you know, were happy with with results. And kind of felt like it was kind of his swan song. Um, what else? I mean, what do we want to dive into here about this? What is this? How did this movie come to be? Yeah, so it's it's interesting that it was kind of called his quote return to form um, because it's arguably way nastier than pretty yeah. much anything he ever did before. Um, obviously, it's seventies uh, uh, phrases like Hitchcock unleashed uh, were you know plastered all over the press 
and it kind of uh, became a constant sticking point to the point where you know he's a he's always been kind of um, um, what's the word confrontational when it comes to press interviews mm-hmm. um especially later in his career uh, at least that's the stuff that you can largely find on youtube right um but he was especially kind of uh um crude and arguably it's also because in the midst of filming uh his wife um and longtime collaborator uh alma hitchcock had a uh, stroke or heart attack. There's some cl- conflicting yeah. reports about that, but it just felt like this was him being like, not just nasty in terms of like style and, but also in terms of just like attitude because he, you know, has a very, uh, explicit rape scene. Um, yes, yeah. it's the seventies, but it's still pretty explicit. Like it's the year after clockwork orange and it's not much tamer than that. No. Um, and it is also, uh, you know, uses some harsher language, uh, than he could probably more commonly get away from, uh, or get away with, uh, in previous years and, uh, nudity and, uh, wrap that all into together with the fact that this is his first time coming back to London in a while since he Mm -hmm. had, you know, moved to Hollywood for a number of years. But in terms of like just the story and where it came from, that's where it's just the kind of pedestrian. Like he had gotten to the point later in his career um, where he was essentially just fine with being a hired hand. Like he wouldn't have that much, um, say in like shaping the story, he still had so much say behind the camera and when it came to casting and what have you, but he would just kind of like take anything that was mildly entertaining or interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he did here. It's from a book um, with a terrible title um, <laughs> called, uh, I, I don't even think I wrote it down cause it's long and dumb. Something about like <laughs> hello Lester square or something. And then there's another half of it anyways uh that's by this random guy named arthur laburn and uh but he wants somebody to adapt it so he has uh screenwriter anthony schaffer who um we actually mentioned earlier uh in this cycle because he was behind the script for death trap um 10 years later in 82 uh and hitchcock was um quoted in the press at the time saying that you know it was just something that came across his desk and uh, uh, Laverne was ready to um, write the script himself based off of his novel. But he Hitchcock felt very strongly. He said, a man who writes a book, that's one medium, but the motion picture is another entirely. And we shouldn't try to ask one man to be a master of two different mediums, which is almost hypocritical because Anthony Schaffer was known more as a playwright, as we talked about um, during the the chaser bit um, regarding Death Trap. Um, so it just kind of feels like on the one hand, he is kind of letting his id go wild, but at the same time, he isn't really putting a lot of care and effort into the conception of this film. No, I think he... It seems like there's like a little documentary on this movie on YouTube, and I watched a bit of it, and it, it just seemed... You could see him filming the scenes, and it—he seemed, I kind of seems checked out to me. I don't know yeah. if that was like his filming style or like how he handled the set, because every director is different. Uh, and then when Alma got, you know, had the stroke or heart attack, he left for a while, and so other people had to take over for certain shots. So it's mm-hmm. not all him. Uh, some of it is some, you know, probably the who would be doing that assistant director or something like that, right? Um, right. 
Uh, so it, it just it, it comes across as, and you know, I've seen Psycho, I've seen Rear Window. This is obviously not in that echelon, right? It's not there. Um, it, it's very. I will say this though. Um, he's was obviously so technically brilliant with filmmaking, obviously one of the best filmmakers who's ever lived, that despite the fact that this story seems kind of a little bit mundane, uh, although he is going back to, he I think his first breakout film was like The Lodger, which is about Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, he's going back to the sort of serial killer in London. He's going back to where he grew up. It seems like he's very comfortable there. So there's an ease with which the film and the story kind of play out. Uh, but technically, I think it's way more fascinating than the content. Uh, yes. The content doesn't really, I didn't find it very fascinating at all. Um, but there's certain sequences like um, the murder of uh, the main character's girlfriend where we don't see it off screen, right? Or we don't mm-hmm. see it the on screen. The tracking shot okay, away pulls, from... Yeah, it pulls the yeah. camera down. I mean, that's amazing. Like yes. so clearly, he like, was on set that day. I think. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, that's definitely him doing his thing. And he even talks about how the cool thing about Hitchcock too is he ta- he loved talking about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So there's just endless amounts of interviews with him about his philosophy and why he did this and why he did that. Um, and he talks about that scene specifically. And so when I'm watching it and sitting through it, and, and I think. Um, if you have a better Hitchcock vocabulary and history with him, it, it's going to be way more enjoyable. But I don't know. I, do, do you find like the content here going back to like the way it was written and that part of it? Did you find it compelling? No, I didn't, and I I, I was disappointed because um, I remember I remember from my like dig into uh, his filmography back when I was in college. In particular, I was getting through some of the the latter works like. Uh, frenzy um where it was just like i kind of remember it being a minor effort but i also had a distinct memory of it being um something that was really uh it picked apart a lot in my film classes at the mm-hmm. university of minnesota because of not necessarily what's readily available like accessible to the average viewer but more so on that whole kind of like meta analysis of Mm -hmm. this guy who's near the end of his career, probably knows it, isn't really taking great care of himself and his, his own personal health. And he just kind of reveals, you know, what he has hinted at for so many years um, regarding uh, his feelings about women. And honestly, like, I don't think I fully made that connection to, to, to circle back to Alex Garland's men, um, which mm-hmm. began this cycle. Um, but I think that's probably where, why I wanted to, to come back here because it, it's amazing really, um, how in this 50 year span of movies, the history of this medium, we've gone from such like one end of like, this really dark and brutal kind of male gaze, uh, this violent male gaze, and then it coming all the way around to a male filmmaker this here trying to kind of wrestle with that. And of course, 
your mileage may vary not to to, to <laughs> relitigate our episode regarding oh, let's let's relitigate that <laughs> alex garland but it's just uh it's just all out in the open now right like of course there's still subtext and there's still um so much to uh to to discuss and argue about but i i just felt really bad um watching uh, frenzy even though there were moments like you said with like the tracking shot pulling oh, away beautiful moments yeah yeah there's they're they're still in there but it's just really hard to reconcile but what do you think that like hitchcock would say it say about that you know like if you had asked him back then about frenzy and about how the women are treated in the movie and all that sort of stuff like i i get the impression that he would be defensive about it and sure. he would say stuff like, Oh, well, you know, it's part of the show business. You have to cast this type of woman. And, and he says he's such a fascinating guy because he'll go on about, um, and he said this about friends and he said this about psycho where I'm going to show you violence. And in frenzy, it's a very, very graphic violence against women, sexual violence. Right. Um, and then he pulls back completely and never shows you anything ever again. Right. And he does basically something similar in Psycho, where he wants to cre- create a sensation, sensational moment that you won't forget, so that every time as the tension builds for the rest of the movie, you're going to fill in your mind something horrific happening. And like, you know, he would probably say... Uh, speaking specifically about the rape scene, it's like, I have to do that to get people kind of screw them up. That's what he wants to do. But the the hard part there is, and to the counter to what he would probably would have said is that, why are you using violence against women as a form of entertainment? Because I think that's the big thing to me. That would be his excuse. And he said it multiple times in interviews. Oh, it's, you know, it's about, it's about the thrill. It's about suspense. It's about getting a reaction out of the audience. And it's sort of, you know, and this is looping back to last house on the left because Wes Craven sort of did the same thing there. Sexual violence, rape, murder, all of these things to get a reaction out of the crowd. I mean, do you feel like, is that some form of defense at all? If there is like a, a way to twist your brain in knots to to justify it it's purely academic and intellectual i feel and it's still very much like a privileged male point of view um it's i don't know it the the thing that really sticks with me um after doing some research uh cinephilia and beyond um has a great write-up of um what made this production like the actual like nuts and bolts of shooting this film so different from his previous ones, which is that essentially like you could make the argument he wanted to go back to, like you said earlier, the London of his youth um, because maybe he saw the writing on his wall, the end of his career. And he wanted to kind of return to that, whether it be nostalgia or uh, trying to, he, he, you know, he did this to the point, not just of like the neighborhood he grew up with, but like um, Rusk, the, the killer in the film um, is working at a fruit and vegetable stand. That's what his father literally did in that neighborhood growing up. Like these kind of weird autobiographical Easter eggs, um, are abundant and uh it still feels like okay 
but then why this and i in same thing with like the subversion of cliche okay like style wise genre wise like very much like outsider view like it's so it feels so <laughs> gross to like put those two things together like the 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 rapist murderer uh antagonist of my movie has the same occupation as my father um but then also like he wants to subvert the cliche of uh saving that really nasty brutal rape for the end of the movie instead puts it at the top and then like you said pulls away just when the audience thinks he's gonna you know go all in um staying so long in the potato truck to the point of like dark comedy of breaking the fingers um and like the just like even the brutal misogyny of uh the 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 quotidian um english uh uh stereotypes and gender roles of like coming home to dinner and the the wife of the detective is making you know these kind of gruesome uh home home cooked meals uh which is on the one hand like just yeah, I like. Yeah, I laughed. Like it's kind of oh, ridiculous. That was the best part of the film. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it, it. I mean, that's one of the things that you know gives the movie some saving grace. Um, those kind of autobiographical details, because like as everybody knew, um, if there is one thing that Hitchcock loved more than um, movies and violence, it was food. And so, like being yeah. able to um, fit that in there, but it's just like so. There are those redeeming factors, but at the end of it, it's just, I mean, even right there with like the abrupt ending, like you said of the, the, uh, you know, the sudden framing and then cut to the credits. It's, um, it all feels really like, uh, like this, like this man is not well. (laughs) Maybe that's part of the point of cinema. Yeah. Yeah. This is the interview he did at, uh, I think NYU, uh, for this film cycle or whatever, um, PR, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes, explicit violence is never as good as people can make violence in their heads. In Psycho, I never show the knife touching the girl, for example. It's all suggested. In Frenzy, the nude girl is dumped from the truck in a bikini of potatoes wired to her body, but the mind <laughs> films in the nakedness. I never take a chance at offending anyone. That would spoil their enjoyment of my films. Hmm. How? I mean the rape scene in frenzy feels pretty explicit to me as much as you get away with in a mainstream movie. Right. Yeah. That seems pretty offensive. Yeah. I mean, it's it. And that's the thing is like, it feels like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Oh, hundred percent. That's exactly what he's doing. And it's like the, I mean, the world is pushing him forward. Right. Cause like I said earlier, the seventies has kind of busted wide open. Um, what, film can be i mean that's when the argument starts getting presented um in uh you know uh, polite society about pornography versus cinema right and uh that gets delved into um you know with taxi driver but then also later on the reagan years and so it's just like it's very much a precursor to that and it just feels like there's this overlap and I'm sure he probably felt it too. I, I mean, how could you not when you, you know, you're the love of your life, uh, you know, has a death scare and you are a person known for like, uh, rep- like visually representing death on film. <laughs> like that's your job. That's your career. Um, that's got to really fuck you up. And I think that kind of, 
hypocrisy and self-hatred just is is so readily apparent. And that's ultimately, I think, where the existentialism comes from. Uh, so many of the films, actually all of the films, I'd say, until this one, have been about like the protagonist um, having some kind of existential crisis. And you could still argue that with this film, right? Like, to some degree, I, yeah. I, I think one of the you know, only interesting things about the the story of the film is the fact that like Richard Blaney, the main character, um, uh, is very much like not a likable person. And so he very much is going through this kind of crisis. Like he's clearly had a fall from grace. He's um, used to be uh, in the military, but now he's a barman and now he's a fired barman. And then he's been divorced. And like, it just seems like, everything makes sense. Like, it's not like Richard Kimball, like, uh, in the fugitive, right. Like, no, a, yeah. a, a heroic, uh, you know, respected doctor that gets accused. Like this is a piece of shit that gets accused of doing something a piece of shit would do. And I, I, if there's all those other autobiographical elements, it, I can't help, but wonder like what was, what drew Hitchcock to the source material? Cause it's not a very interesting story, but did he, did he res- kind of resonate with that idea of like a piece of shit being accused of being a piece of shit, even though he's not that big of a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, there's something here where it's sort of like, he wants to come back to London and like, I don't, he probably wasn't very excited about this. Right. Yeah. He's there's just, no way he's he was like you, you can tell in the way that it's shot and the way the story is done. There's just it's very workmanlike all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are flashes of phenomenal filmmaking without a doubt. Um, but this there's a reason why this film is not as sort of um, remembered fondly as his other classics. Obviously, yeah. you know it's a it's a minor. Would you call it a minor Hitchcock work or kind of? Yeah. Hitchcock? I don't know what the term is for that. No, be I a, think. Be a, beer T or tier B or whatever you call it. Um, right. Yeah. I, the thing about it though, too, is that, um, when you're talking about precursors here, that's where the film, I think rises to a different level. And I think almost on an unconscious level for Hitchcock, because it is so, like you said, in a way insular and cut off from the world. And you can tell that they're, is a darkness in him that has not been vanquished, so to speak, mm-hmm. or even necessarily dealt with. And you can feel that in the film. There is a sort of modern anxiety to the whole thing and a weird sort of disassociation going on with the protagonist and who are we following? We're following him, and then the killer, and then the police inspector. There is a weird sort of contemporary nature to the film that... Um, you know, I do, you know, looking back at it as a piece of film history, it's important from that aspect, right? Yeah. Because it is kind of uh, a brick along the path towards the future of filmmaking. Um, you know, and obviously, like, why is that? Well, it's Hitchcock, a big name. It did decently well. It probably had a big splash in London. So there was a lot of cachet around the whole thing. So a lot of people saw the movie. Um but I do wonder, you know, how indebted is something like Taxi Driver to this? I mean, what do you think? I'm like, what yeah. do you think the this the 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 tentacles of this sort of anxiety and darkness that Hitchcock was showing on screen? It does 
feel very contemporary to me all the way through, I'd say the 2000s, like the, 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 the aughts. Nowadays, yeah. less so, um, but definitely through like a lot of the sort of sexual thrillers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really dark period in the, um, and then uh, not necessarily the 90s, but I think the, the, the aughts specifically, where things are just kind of gross. Yeah, um, well, I think I like think, anything how, is it related to all that? Absolutely, I think. I mean, and that's that's part of the deal. Is like it's growing pains in the genre, right? Is like we're trying to get from we're trying to get from like a really kind of um, more innocuous and suggestive kind of thriller suspense film to something that is like outwardly nasty, but like not in a. Uh, but still, like, done tastefully, like Fincher's Zodiac, maybe. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and along the way, you, you know, happen upon a diamond like Sounds of the Lambs in the early 90s. And, yeah, there was a there's a, a book um, all about Paul Schrader, the screenwriter of yeah. Taxi Driver, and obviously the filmmaker behind uh, not necessarily a lot of thrillers, more dramas, but definitely existential movies, mm-hmm. like First Reformed and The Card <laughs> Counter. Yeah. Um, George Cavaros was the writer of that book, and he points specifically to that tracking shot we've come back to a couple times in Frenzy. He says uh, um, that that sequence echoes um, the the kind of tracking shots that Scorsese does in Taxi Driver um, that's probably also at least somewhat scripted in, in, in Schrader's world depiction of New York City, which is a very different New York City than what had previously been you know, committed to celluloid, um, even like the darker versions of New York, um, throughout the, the years of, you know, the golden age of Hollywood and have, what have you, um, just kind of like what frenzy's doing with London. Um, he says that the, the camera's exit from the building seems to quote, erase the crime. Um, in taxi driver, there's this long slow yeah. track back over the bodies, pools of blood, you know, after Travis Bickle's, uh, massacre, um, at the end of the film. And, uh, I mean, it is, it's like, it's, it's almost like, you know, Hitchcock talks about how sometimes, you know, he subverted a cliche so many times that it became a new cliche. And I think yeah. that's one of them, right? That it's like um, the, the, the British version is to pull away and not leave anything in view. And the more American way is to pull away, but then see all the dead bodies. Right. <laughs> um, so in that sense, like, yeah, there, there, there's enough, there's enough uh, redeeming factors in frenzy to, to make a decent, at least, like I said earlier, academic intellectual argument. Um, but I think, uh, um, what you see, um, even though it's very well cast, uh, that's another thing that's, you know, one of the more unique things about frenzy, especially in comparison to other Hitchcock movies where like, you know, uh, Janet Lee or, uh, um, Cary Grant, um, would be, um, a clear, cast lead like this is also kind of early in the whole idea of autorism where you know uh you wouldn't just have a director's name on it but you wouldn't also have like a star's name on it right um this is you know pretty uh unknown actors and uh both for the the male and female um characters even though there's like this rampant misogyny. Like those are, that's, they are some, especially for the women, I think like some pretty interesting performances yeah, of these actor. very, uh, stereotypical roles. Um, there's a great write up about how trying to reconcile, you know, like the, the, the immaculate precision of the acting and the filmmaking with just the, 
raw, just horrible um, sexism that's on screen. Mary Munoz of Jump Cut Online wrote, uh, the women in the film fit firmly into three camps, the nag, the prude, or the good time gal. Uh, they're never fleshed out beyond this, and Hitchcock seems to reserve his most vicious rage for the first two, which is kind of interesting because he's you know attempting to subvert a cliche just in general with the genre. But like he could have easily like he changed a lot of things from the novel with Anthony Schaffer's help. He could have easily changed the 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 rape part of it, the sex part of it, but he chose not to, and he you know reserved the most graphic rape and murder for the nag, the second most uh, brutal for the prude, and the off-screen one for the good time gal. Yeah. It's it's really it, unfortunate. It's a minefield. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. But, but I, the one thing I, I will bring up too is that in trying to connect this to the broader sort of existential thriller cycle that we've been doing... It, it, it kind of reminds me a bit of um, when we did Last House on the Left and then the Chaser film, was, was it Fearless Vampire Hunters? Yes. Right? Rowan Polanski, yeah. Yeah, Rowan Polanski. And I remember when we had that discussion, we were sort of trying to figure out, hey, does this movie feel like it was a harbinger of things to come or kind of a, kind of a, it stayed at the party too long type feeling? Like a holdover from another another period mm-hmm. frenzy is strange in that i think a lot of it is a holdover from the 60s and 50s and 40s and the, the early part of his career and just society in general a lot of the you know anti-women uh stereotypical stuff patriarchy stuff is all throwback um because that stuff is was the norm in movies all of that mm-hmm. we were talking about the lack of representation, no woman has an actual sort of character beyond how they service men, all throwback. But what we talked about before and sort of the anxiety, the darkness to it, the cynicism of it, the kind of lack in faith in, in humanity seems like it's kind of pushing towards the future. So it is a very odd film yeah, where there's a lot of juxtaposition going on. And it, I think that's one of the reasons why it's not viewed as like a, a greater film of Hitchcock's just because it's muddle as hell. Right. You know, right. It, it feels like an old film with some, a lot of new ideas, but it just does not gel. I don't think at all. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons it feels so uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Not unlike why the hunt I think feels so uncomfortable to watch in 2022, you know, after, yeah me too um but still very much coming from like arguably a good place um uh you know telling you know a different kind of story um trying to get people to understand nuance um and then like here with frenzy it's 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 like almost the inverse right like the, the, it doesn't <laughs> yes, want you right. to like it, it doesn't want you to think about nuance it just wants like he wants to provoke but at the same time, he is kind of just uh, not. He, he he seems to have very little concern with uh, um, audience readings. He he, yeah. he just kind of a. Uh, I don't know. It's yeah. It really feels like a weird last last gasp. Well, I think he's um, like, he's like a prankster playing a cruel. Yeah, show, right? yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's just like ugh. yeah. There's an uncomfortable feeling to it. What about our chaser film? Let's talk about wait until dark. 
Yes. Um, have you seen this before? No, this was a first watch for me. You too? Uh, how did we select it? I select this? <laughs> I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. It might it have. It just appeared on our list. It, it was meant it to be. Yeah. Um, what do we think of this? Psychological thriller. Audrey Hepburn um, uh, plays a blind woman, a blind woman who um, is essentially terrorized uh, by three criminals. Um, mm-hmm. 1967. Um, what other details do you have about this one? Any sort of background you want to... Yeah, well, uh, it's it's notable because, like we've talked about a couple different times, including just right in this episode, is that it's an adaptation for the screen from a play. Yes. Um, not a novel this time and not an original uh, script, but, uh, I mean, it very much um, has a lot of similar feelings to Death Trap, which we mentioned, but it also is, it's yet again another kind of fun accident parallel we uh began with a movie that had a female protagonist um that is terrorized by men and we end with one uh (laughs) and i don't think we had one in between right like i think that you're right isn't that odd how that works (laughs) yeah the existential thriller is not something that you know easily uh uh works with a female protagonist at least in the eyes of you know the history of filmmaking (laughs) Yeah, well, because um, you need more a real them, protagonist though. for that. Yeah. Uh, that's the <laughs> sure. reality of the situation. Um, but uh, I, I, I actually, I kind of loved this movie. It, why, <laughs> I, why did you love it? I, I struggled with it a lot just because yeah. the style felt very old to me. Um, it is a very old style. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, the thing that made this movie go down in history, arguably, is um, the last eight minutes of the movie. Yes. Uh, it, it, it is takes place in almost complete darkness, which is kind of brazen and honestly experimental for 1960s cinema. Sure. Um, they posted uh, signs in movie theaters uh, for people that bought tickets for the film saying, quote, during the last eight minutes of this picture, the theater will be darkened to the legal limit to heighten the terror of the breathtaking climax, nice. which takes place in to- nearly total darkness on the screen. In those sections where smoking is per- permitted, those patrons are respectfully requested not to jar the effect by lighting up during the sequence. Uh-huh, um, Different yeah, and, huh? and I mean, that's there's a little bit of that prankster-ism, because like, Hitchcock did that too. He was known for, yeah, he would absolutely. literally like have pictures of himself like tapping his watch, saying like, no one's admitted after the first 10 minutes of the film, um, especially for Psycho and his other more uh, successful efforts. So, I mean... It it's interesting that we we really haven't like talked about that um, notion of like almost the 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 gimmick effect when it comes to thrillers sure. because uh, you know we talked a little bit about like how scary something can be when we did a self aware horror but um, I, I I maybe maybe it's just me um, because I had kind of bought into the film um, plot holes abundant and everything uh, but. It is all is specifically famous, not just for that last eight minute sequence, but for one particular jump scare. Yeah. And you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Where you, the lunch. Yes. So Alan Arkin, uh, who's plays, wonderful in this. He's amazing. He makes the movie. Yeah. Without him, it would be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, he is one of the, the terrorizers. Essentially the, the conceit, right? Is that because she's blind, <clears throat> she can't tell who's who. And so these guys um, have 
basically constructed multiple personas to try to create this fake experience about like one guy who knows her husband, who's um, out uh, on his job as a night photographer or whatever. Um, And uh, they're trying to manipulate her into revealing where this uh, doll full of heroin is that somehow her husband wound up in possession of. Yeah. It's so contrived. Right. (laughs) But what makes it work is this, I think, cat and mouse between Audrey Hepburn and Alan Arkin, who's like just batshit insane. And like, finally, like I, I, I'd always enjoyed Alan Arkin. Like I think he relatively deserved that <laughs> little miss sunshine supporting Oscar. Um, but he has always been a character actor, but he really gets to like ham it up for the screen here with his like weird bowl haircut and the glasses creepy smiling glasses um and like compare and contrast that with uh, hepburn's very kind of mannered you know old school kind of performance and it just plays off each other really well and when that jump scare happens like i did i watched this movie at 10 in the morning but i still (laughs) i still was jolted by it it was really effective yeah it's funny you say that because i came across it was either an interview or something (laughs) a book or something about somebody seeing this film with a large group of people at like a camp or something with like a lot of like younger people. Um, and this person was basically talking about how, you know, everybody was like really engrossed in the film, but in that moment, the jump scare, like the entire, like 500 people or something like just jumped out of their seats. It's amazing. And then like, there's like, I'd never seen anything like this before in my life, which is so odd to me because I don't know. I just it it that even that feels dated to me, like yeah. the jump scare. Like it just uh, it, it it also feels like a play. Like it feels like a teleplay. Yeah. Um. It's like that one essentially one location. Uh. So it's it, it it also kind of works because it feels claustrophobic. Um. And I think you know what's interesting. The one thing that did pop into my mind here is like and you kind of just mentioned it as something like a really fascinating looking back on a historical viewpoint is um arkin feels very late 60s his mm-hmm. vibe his mm-hmm. tone feels menacing you know feels like that sort of manson-esque killer and hepburn is just obviously a classical you know classic actress and it there is that weird conflict there of a changing in you know change in society, how this sort of astute, very poised, polished woman is being terrorized by this kind of grimy, um, amoral freak, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now that I I love that part, like that whole um, sort of conflict between those two is very very interesting. Um, what do we make of? You know, from a thriller perspective, I think the film's quite successful, I would say. Um, from the existential part of it, what do we think, uh, what do we think's going on here? Is there a lot of meat on the bone? There, there's not, admittedly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there really wasn't just in general, I think, for like genre work in the yeah. in this era of Hollywood, right? Yeah. Um, I will think, I think it came up now that I'm kind of looking, I'm digging back into my Chrome history to, to figure this out. I think it, I did. Dangerous. I am the culture, culprit for uh, putting it on our list. And it's because actually there were, there's a, 
uh, a couple different moments in the film now that I'm rereading this, having seen the film now, but like uh, where you have to uh, really think about um, the the concept, not just literally, because that's very true in this film, but also metaphorically of darkness, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, this idea of um, amorality, uh, Stephen King uh, has um, wait until dark, at least in the, in 1981, he put out a book called dance macabre about uh, non book media representations mm-hmm. of horror. And he called at that moment in time, anyways, wait until dark, the scariest movie of all time saying that Alan Arkin's performance may be the greatest evocation of yes. screen villainy ever. Yeah. And I, so yeah. like when it comes down to it and uh, I mean, even more so than the concept of self-awareness or postmodernism when we did horror films, uh, we played fast and loose, right? With the concept of existentialism. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this cycle. And and that's okay because it's, it's, it's a term that, uh, whose definition has, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very much kind of changed over the years, especially in popular culture. Um, the thing that really sticks with me, though, and I think this comes back to, you know, because we wanted to, at least I did, I wanted to start with uh, Alex Garland's Men before I'd even seen it, uh, is this real um, question, and I think we talked about this back on that episode and maybe even a couple times after that, too, especially with movies like uh, The Game yeah. and Michael Clayton, um, the idea of figuring out who you are, and it's... Yes very much like kind of a throwaway detail about Audrey Hepburn's character in wait until dark. But I think it's important to note that her character it's, she's not been blind since birth, right? She was blinded like a year prior to the story. Um, and there's a couple conversations she has again, not a lot of meat on their bones, but enough to make it feel like this concept of darkness is not just something that is, uh, uh, you know, been plaguing her her whole life, but that has like is a symbol of her own trauma, right? Yeah. And in in movies like The Game, like the the suicide of his father, it's a it's this haunting symbol of his own trauma that comes back to him over and over again. Yeah. Um, and so existentialism is ultimately something that you know the crisis uh, is something that you have when you are trying to figure out who you are, especially in the face of constantly haunting trauma and uh i feel like that's really powerful and i i mean the it's unfortunate that the, the, so much of the dialogue in the script has to do with you know the machinations of this ridiculous um set of manipulations um but uh i would love to see like i know there's been like on the style end of things an attempt at that with uh you know I'd imagine a lot of people would watch this movie and be like, Oh yeah, this is like, don't breathe or panic room. (laughs) But like, what if we actually had someone kind of tackle this kind of character, these, this kind of duo of characters of the light and the dark, um, the blind and you know, the, the manipulator um, nowadays, like I I would be excited to to see something like that. I think it's definitely due for like, um, uh, a re not a reboot or you know a remake. <laughs> wait until dark two requel uh, but I, I will say this i did pick up on something uh and kind of what you're talking about there is a moment early on where she i think she talks about the accident 
And then there's a very sort of mansplaining moment <laughs> where she's yeah. sort of like, well, I'll do anything for you, blah, 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 blah. I think that's pointed in the sense that like she's helpless on some level. She doesn't have a lot of confidence anymore. She's dependent on Sam, on this man, right? Like she feels very diminished, right? And by mm-hmm. the end, through the conflict, she doesn't feel as there's she's risen to the life or death moment and survived and yep. now she's a new person that i mean every single most of the movies we're talking about are about that there is you know person a uh, at the beginning thriller and then person b comes out of that thriller right, right. and almost right. every movie michael clayton the hunt game in well insomnia dies but the crying game how you have to go through all of that into order to really understand love and commitment and stuff like that it's you know but they um, but they're still damaged at the end right well there's almost like two paths here because you look at like sorcerer like house of games insomnia kind of not good ending not good endings for the characters right Mm -hmm. um uh, killing of a sacred deer you know, how does Colin Farrell become a better person by, you know, accidentally, sh- not accidentally <laughs> shooting his son, you know, what I mean? like, uh, or men for that matter. Yeah. You know, there's, it, it doesn't necessarily work with all of them, but I think it is sort of a trope or pattern where what you're talking about in terms of existentialism, which is, you know, trying to figure out who you are and what you are in the world. Oftentimes we don't, we don't, um, broach that subject we don't make that choice the choice is thrust upon us through conflict mm-hmm, and i think that's mm-hmm. you see it in wait until dark um you know you see it definitely in crying game and the game uh and certainly michael clayton in the hunt but i think that there, there, there's a broader sort of um flow there um that's happening where i think you, you know the the thriller is the catalyst for change in the character uh, it doesn't always happen that way. Like Sorcerer, I think of all the movies, trying to get, like trying to wrap this thing up in, in a bow for us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but Sorcerer is the one that kind of sticks with you the most because it feels, in a way, raw in an existential sense. Mm-hmm. Like when you're thinking about an existentialism in its pure form, like Camus start back in the day, Sorcerer feels like the most existential film. Yes. Because it's, there's no way out, right? Yeah. Ultimately, it's that was the, the message the of a lot of existentialists. Yeah. There is no way out. And so what you do with what you have and the time that you have is very important. And that's the richness of life. Uh, even if it means, you know, taking some crazy job to drive dynamite across, you know, South America. <laughs> right? Like, But there's, there's a victory in him at what Roy Shiner does at the end. He wins, right? And even though he gets shot at the end of the movie and he dies, whatever, but he still did that. You know, and that's the thing that matters. And I think, I don't know, it's it's funny to kind of look at these films that way and see who comes out with a sort of existential win. You know what I mean? Right. And I mean, it's interesting that we we are able to wrap that up with Wait Until Dark, but with Frenzy, like, (sighs) there... That's why that movie feels so empty, right? Yeah. Is... Is because we lose that, and maybe that's once again purposeful. It's pranksterism on Hitchcock's part, but it really feels like 
uh, a half-hearted effort into that that journey um it's interesting you bring up sorcerer because like i'm looking back and i feel really i love that movie and i i think it's probably like my it's probably my second favorite of the one that we we did this cycle yeah. uh but i i i i have been haunted by it since i first saw it in the movie theaters but the ending of michael clayton the oh, uh, God, yeah. getting in the cab right and saying just drive yeah. and it's also like it, what's similar is that it's that admittance that there is no way out right there's no way out but the one thing like kind of like with the dynamite uh the choice to to traverse that he didn't make that choice and that's why once again i i, I don't want to uh i know uh, ha- a joke said twice is just going to kill it but with the new hopefully soon to be in production henry clayton we can be uh brought into the world of <laughs> passing that legacy down right <laughs> of uh if we if it was too late for us it can't it, it doesn't have to be too late for our sons yeah maybe that's spoken <laughs> from a father and someone who doesn't have a child i have a different viewpoint of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um no, really. but no it's been it's been a great uh interesting series and cycle i think it yeah it's it's an odd one because there's a lot of different um paths that you can take with a thriller and you know some of them end in awfulness uh and mm-hmm. some of them end with some sort of triumph even if it's fleeting um yeah. but in every single one there's just a a grand transformation that happens uh, and that's what makes these movies exciting you know, Absolutely. that's what makes them interesting and engaging is that the, 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 the protagonist does actually change, right? Something does mm-hmm. happen. Um, any other closing thoughts for us? No, I mean, uh, when we did um, self-aware horror, I kind of looked back at the end of that uh, finale and in deeper into film history, because obviously it doesn't end uh, with 1967, doesn't begin there either. Uh, but we uh, had a kind of a, a crossover. We did an episode. We don't think we've mentioned it on this show. Um, we did a special Patreon episode for our friends over at Spoiler Peace Theater yeah. regarding whatever happened to Baby Jane, yes. um, which came out in 62 um, and very much fits both the yeah. existential thriller uh, template as well as the self-aware horror one. Um, absolute classic. If you haven't caught us on that episode, um, seek it out. Um, it's, it's a fun conversation with Evan, uh, and his co-host there on spoiler piece theater. Um, 62 was also the year that Cape fear and Manchurian candidate came out Two thrillers that definitely could argue, uh, existentialism on both the domestic and political sides. Uh, and then further back 1957 courtroom dramas got pretty existential with witness for the prosecution and 12 angry men. Yeah. 1952, uh, more kind of spy espionage um, thriller, The Atomic City, uh, noir. I think one of its most existential zeniths is uh, Out of the Past, 1947. Yes. I know we're both fans of that one. Yeah. Um, and then uh, to make another connection to Paul Schrader, he uh, remade Cat People, which came out in 42, which uh, very much, once again, kind of crosses over. Um, that's uh, the, the movie that... Um, initiated that uh instigated the term male gaze in uh film academia um and is arguably you know just as much a thriller as it is a horror film um because it's very psychological in nature uh but uh definitely seek out the original black and white version from 42 not schrader's (laughs) problematic opus from the 80s yeah it's not very good 
Um, <laughs> shall we tease a possible? What are we? What are we doing for the next cycle, Chris? Should we like cash oh, out right now? On sure. sure. Like, we're gonna. We're gonna. We've been going back and forth, Dan and I, with spreadsheets and emails and charts, and um, we want to do something regarding the idea of action and comedy. Yes. Um, because Which bullet is different train than adventure comedy. we will we will figure it out soon enough um but yeah we will be back we appreciate you all listening um this has been film tricks